Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Sports Travel Podcast, where we interview leaders in the sports event industry. This is Jason Gewertz, Vice President of the North Star Meetings Group Sports Division and the Executive Editor and Publisher of Sports Travel. And our latest episode is a wide-ranging conversation about women's sports on the 50th anniversary of the landmark Title IX legislation, a talk that was recently held at the Teams 22 Conference and Expo and moderated by the Managing Editor of Sports Travel, Matt Trout. But before we begin, this episode of the Sports Travel Podcast is being sponsored by the Virginia Beach Convention and Visitors Bureau. Level up your next sporting event in Virginia Beach, an action-packed city where the spirit of competition thrives. Virginia Beach's state-of-the-art sports facilities are ready to host a wide variety of indoor and outdoor sporting events year-round and can welcome crowds of all sizes. Even better, these modern complexes are located just minutes from the city's many hotels, restaurants, attractions, and miles of sandy beaches, making for an event your attendees won't soon forget. Get your game on at vbsports.com. And now, on to the conversation. From its signing in 1972, Title IX has become the backbone for which women's sports have climbed from decades of inequity and ignorance to the spot they have today. Particularly for the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic movement, the past decade has seen the biggest names and biggest accomplishments come from the women's teams. Indeed, women's professional sports teams saw record attendance and ratings this past season, suggesting there has been tremendous progress at the elite level of women's sports, especially in recent years. But there, of course, remains considerable work ahead. At our recent Teams Conference and Expo, we assembled an impressive group of women who have accomplished some amazing feats in sports, both on the field and off. Our discussion included Hillary Knight, an Olympic gold medalist, three-time Olympic silver medalist, and eight-time world champion in ice hockey, who holds the record for the most all-time points and goals scored at the Women's World Championships. Amanda Krauss, the CEO of U.S. Rowing and one of the few female chief executives of an Olympic national governing body. Linda Logan, the longtime CEO and president of the Greater Columbus Sports Commission in Ohio and a trailblazer in the sports tourism industry. Kaleo McClay, a three-time Paralympic medalist for Team USA's sitting volleyball team, including two golds and a silver, with 14 years competing at the elite level. And Benita Fitzgerald Mosley, a gold medalist in the 100-meter hurdles at the 1984 Olympic Games in Los Angeles, who's now president of the League Apps Fund Play Foundation and vice president of community and impact for the youth sport management technology platform. In this discussion, moderated by Sports Travel Managing Editor Matt Traub, we talked to each of these titans of sport about their own journeys and experiences with Title IX and what remains to be done in the future for true equality to be achieved. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Thank you all. As we talk about what is the most consequential legislation in sports history, it was June 23rd, 1972. Title IX was signed into law with these words, no person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any educational program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. Benita, I'd like to start with you and we'll go down the line of our panelists today. What is your personal story as it pertains to how Title IX has changed your life? Yeah, those 37 words were pretty monumental and uh, I call my participation in sport and my Olympic gold medal the gifts that keep on giving. And every aspect of my life has been impacted by sport, whether it's meeting my husband and the two kids or pretty much every every job I've ever had in and out of sport has 
been somehow traced back to um, that legislation, the opportunity to play at 12 years old as a literally a Title IX baby. And started in middle school, I was just telling the story, Bart was saying, you know, or tall, something about tall gymnasts, and he said, well, they're, they're never any good ones or something, and I was certainly the epitome of that, not, not a very good gymnast at 12 years old, but my middle school PE teacher was also, was the gymnastics coach and also the track coach, and thankfully, Coach Washington tapped me on the shoulder one day, said, you know, you, you beat all the boys in, in PE class, you should come out for the track team, and kind of the rest is history, so just very thankful for that, you know, having the opportunity to go to school and get a college scholarship and compete uh, on the national and international level at, as a teenager and then on to, to the Olympic Games is just, again, it's a gift that keeps on giving and I'm, I'm just so grateful. Linda, I know, for those who may not know, Linda Logan in 1979 was part of the front office in a sales position, I believe you told me, for the Milwaukee Does, which in that time was part of the Women's Professional Basketball League, the first ever pro basketball league for women in the United States. Yes, so many opportunities for me. I myself uh, was not an athlete. I'm in such an esteemed company here, but uh, the legislation passed when I was in high school. So we really didn't have organized sports, but I traveled with the boys team. I was the statistician, the sports editor, and just was fortunate enough to go to college at Ohio University that opened a lot of doors, right, as women were going into the front office. So whether it was women's basketball in those early days or the facility management or ultimately the destination side, I just felt like the doors just flew open after that legislation happened. Amanda, how about you? Yeah, thank you. Such a fun question. I. Uh, had the opportunity to walk onto the rowing team at UMass Amherst. They grabbed anyone who was tall and looked innocent um, and said, you want to try a new sport. And when, we, when I first started, we were a club sport, and I had the incredible opportunity to be there as we transitioned into a varsity sport and went from you know, really doing rent-a-rower, where you would go rake leaves in Amherst for 12 hours, um, or drive yourselves to races to fully funded, you know, a daily food stipend and a training room and equipment and workout clothing that got washed. So really got to experience what that, that looked like. That was a direct result of Title IX. And then Kaleo and Hillary, how about your stories? Because you are different than the, uh, Amanda and Linda and Benita in that, I guess, I would, I, I, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, in that you probably don't know a life without Title IX. Yeah, I think for me, I grew up as a direct result of the women before me and the hard work that they have put in for opportunities that I had the privilege of receiving from 12 years old when I started on the Paralympic team, even before that from 10 years old when I started playing volleyball. And I really knew nothing different. I, my mom had explained to me the difference in my experience and the different in her, difference in her experience, which was very vast. But my experience has been incredible. And for inclusion as a woman, inclusion as an athlete with a disability, I was born with club foot. And so my lack of movement, my lack of um, a calf muscle can really limited me in volleyball, which is my sport. But I was still had the opportunity to play and be the best self I could within my limitations. Um, and then that translated directly into sitting volleyball, which I was able to make a career out of, which I've loved. So it is a big difference. And I think for me, um, 
I want to commit to being a part of the next 50 for Title IX, and I think there is, as much as there has happened and how incredible it is now, I know that there's still 50 more years to go and there's so much progress still to be made. Um, so also I think part of mine is being so grateful for um, how far we've come and also looking forward to how much further there is to go. And then Hillary. Yeah, similarly grateful to how far we've come. Um, I'm the first benefiter of Title IX in our household and in many ways I don't know any different. It provided a handful of opportunities for me to be able to compete at the sport at this level uh, for as long as I have, but I've also been able to have the opportunity to receive an education, travel around the world, and meet phenomenal people. And I know my mother and other women in, in sort of our family weren't afforded the same opportunities, so uh, very thankful for the pioneers and all the women um, and men that came before us to be able to establish something this concrete for 50 years and excited for where Title IX can go and can soar because the trickle-down effect just from the institutional level, you know, from the sports level is just incredible and that's only beginning in my opinion. And then for Hillary and Kaleo as our active athletes on the panel, what's it like from your perspective to see how Paralympic women's sports and women's sports, especially in the last couple of years for those who remain athletes, has surged so much both in attention, media, commercially in recent years? I mean, the greatest amount for potential growth is on the women's side, right? And I think it's easy um, because we haven't been afforded the luxury of time and resources for, for as long as men's sports has been. And so um, to see the growth even recently, if I just look at sort of the trajectory of my career and how much further women's ice hockey has been pushed, visibility is increasing, program is increasing, we're, we're receiving more resources and funding than we ever had before. And granted, it is a starting point and it needs to be more because it's not necessarily equitable all the time, but we're, we're moving the needle in many, in many ways. Um, so it's really encouraging to see all the successes continue to build. And I'm... I'm confident that we're heading in the right direction and really excited for all of women's sports and other industries to be a catalyst for that. Khalil, Paralympic women's sports and Paralympic sports in general has surged in TV attention the last couple of years. It's really seemed to be a, a big growth industry for those in being able to have the attention that for so long had not been coming. Yeah, like for us, we, um, I think being Volleyball. Volleyball has boomed within, even since I started, um, in about 2006 is when I started playing volleyball. And just overall, the amount of teams, the amount of um, just coverage on NCAA level has been incredible. Um, and then whenever you translate that to sitting volleyball, there's this catch-22 that we were talking about earlier that for disabled athletes to see sitting volleyball and the Paralympics in general, there has to be coverage in order for them to see who we are, that this is even a possibility. And so I think that as more coverage comes along, then more athletes can get introduced to our sport and to the Paralympics in general. Um, for example, in 2016 in Rio, we won our first gold medal. And an athlete who at the time um, had just been... Um, had their leg amputated from cancer, and she saw us playing on TV in her hospital room, and then was on our team in Tokyo um, for the Paralympics and won a gold medal. So I think that just shows how important it is for female athletes and female athletes with a disability to be in the media and to be shown so that other athletes coming up can see what they can do. 
Benita, I'd like to start this topic with you and then everybody else can jump in as they feel. The Women's Sports Foundation this year said one million high school girls miss out on athletic opportunities compared to boys. What is the importance of grassroots development throughout this industry for girls so that they can receive the same opportunities as boys do in both youth sports and in high school sports? Yeah, we, we're, you know, it's been 50 years and girls have just now caught up. So they have the same number of sports opportunities in high school that boys had in 1972. So we, it's been 50 years and we just caught up to the boys 50 years ago. You know, 75% of high school boys play sports and only 60% of high school girls. There's still a 60,000 opportunity gap between men in college and how many they are, opportunities they have. And they have 60,000 more opportunities than women do in college. So it's impacted, you know, I just <clears throat> have a daughter that's at University of Maryland competing in track and field. So just went through the whole recruiting process with her and how they're having to divvy up scholarships in order to make up a whole team. And, to, and you know, certainly the pandemic has impacted all of that and the transfer portal and all that. So when you see girls that want to compete and they're playing youth sports with the goal and ambition and the vision and the dream of competing in college and beyond, and to see that those, and even in high school, you know, they, when there aren't enough opportunities for girls to play in high school, then they drop out when they're 11 and 12 and 13 years old in middle school, because where, where do they see themselves going? And they don't only miss out on the sports aspect of it, but all the life lessons and benefits that girls accrue to them because they're playing. And we know that 94% of women executives in Fortune 500 companies played sports when they were younger. So those are the kinds of opportunities you want to see for girls, both on and off the playing field. Linda, from the Sports Commission point of view, having girls' events is every single bit as productive and revenue generating for boys' events as well. To um, provide opportunities. I think that's what we're all saying is that now there are more opportunities so how can we continue that in that in that space and just talking about the fact that all of us have these opportunities to host these big events whether it's USA Volleyball uh, you know junior championships or NCAA you're seeing it at the turnstiles you're seeing that in television ratings but I think it starts with the grassroots and I know there are some of us that have been gotten into the camp space and the sports sampling space and we have uh, two weeks of camp now for girls, uh, really boys and girls, 6 through 12, that can learn about 14 different sports. And they might not know that gymnastics might not be for them, but then they may pick up a lacrosse stick for the first time or, or a hockey stick. And I think that's important for us to be able to, to tell that story. Amanda, from the NGB perspective, how are you able to make sure that you are providing those same opportunities for girls as you do for boys, starting at the grassroots level, because for you, it's also about being able to train athletes toward being potential Olympians. Yeah, so I'll answer with the NGB hat on, and then I'm gonna answer with another hat on. Uh, the NGB hat on for rowing, we have girls participating at higher levels than boys at this point, female athletes more so than male athletes, especially on the collegiate level. So I don't think we're missing opportunities there. I would say putting my, prior to becoming the CEO of rowing, I was running an organization in New York City called Row New York that brought competitive rowing 
and college prep to young people, and we saw disproportionately greater responsibility was put on young women from under-resourced communities to be caregivers, to help you know, take care of younger siblings with responsibilities around the house, and therefore missed opportunities to be engaged with sports. So I think it's important for us to really make sure we're looking at you know, not just overall growth of access for girls and women, but really being thoughtful about which girls and women are getting that access in this country. And then for Kaleo and for Hillary, what is it like for you guys? You have been able to grow up in Title IX. You've talked about the opportunities that you had growing up growing as youths and then in high school. So when you're able to see what the high school girls hockey scene is growing into now, what high school Paralympic volleyball opportunities are now, what do you see in, in those areas and what do you hope is able to continue happening in those areas? Yeah, I'd say, so when I first started playing ice hockey, the first time I knew women played at the, the highest level was 98, when we, we won an Olympic gold medal and the first time women's hockey was in the Olympics. You know, visibility is just, it's so important. And I think back on just my career, and I was one of the only girls on the ice for however many years. And to, to coach at the younger levels and sort of the grassroots levels, now girls are having more access to ice time. Their teams are having priority times for ice, which wasn't around when I was younger. And now you can play on an all-girls team, the sport that you love. So I just think it, it's wonderful to see these different opportunities have the trickle-down effect from the institutional level. And um, you know, they're only going to continue to grow. And it wasn't until you know, I started coaching a little bit at that level that I realized, like oh, like I had to play on an all-boys team because there wasn't another option. And I was given the ice because the boys had priority ice. So um, it's wonderful just to see that growth. But, you know, it, it, it took a long time to get there, and we got to keep going. Yeah, for volleyball, looking at it at the younger level, so, I mean, middle school, high school, even in sixth grade, girls are starting to get involved in volleyball, which is such a great opportunity um, because it... Previously, if you hadn't been involved in volleyball until you were like in high school, then you're way behind, at least for um, greater opportunity in volleyball. So there has been basically this massive growth within school volleyball of offering it to younger girls, and you've really seen that, and I see it too. I My original, first time I played volleyball, I was um, 10 years old on a 12-year-old's team, and and now it's they have a 10-year-old's team that has six teams, and so really the growth has been so extreme for the sport, and, and it's really been great, I think, for every level of volleyball because it just increases the um, amount of athletes who are able to participate, and also... Volleyball is traditionally known as like a country club sport. And so I think allowing more equity in the teams, maybe in, in different school districts or um, better coaches in different school districts or more access to, to this elite level volleyball for every, every athlete, not just the ones at the highest paid school districts who want to offer volleyball or who have this at an elite level. It's so important that young girls are involved in every school district. U.S. female athletes won 66 medals at the Tokyo Summer Olympic Games, which would have been put them third in the overall medals table just by themselves. At the most recent Winter Games in Beijing, the U.S. won 25 medals, and women played a role in 17 of them. 
how crucial has Title IX been in Olympic and Paralympic participation for females? Benita, I'd like to start with you. As somebody who, as we saw with earlier, is able to uh, savor the experience of having won an Olympic gold medal in 1984. Our sports system is the envy of the world, and due in large part because of, the, because of Title IX. And so the results that you just talked about, those athletes are the children of people like me who were the first to be able to take advantage of that, but it's just trickling down now and more and more women have taken advantage and it shows. Linda, I know in some ways it's not just the Olympic, but for some of these, so many of these Olympic athletes, they start at the collegiate scene and Columbus has been able to be the scene. You mentioned uh, Volleyball Final Four was there this past year. You've hosted NCAA Women's Basketball Final Four in the past. What is it like for, in your city from what you've seen as young girls are able to see these collegiate athletes who then become Olympians? I still get people five years later from hosting a very exciting women's final four where every game was a buzzer beater, but they'll say, oh, we were there, we brought our daughter, we brought our whole family. And so just the fact that you can be a game changer in your own community and the fact that maybe our mayor's daughter never played sports, she was 10 years old, and now he can't get her to, she's playing volleyball, she's playing basketball, because that was a defining moment for her, because she had never been exposed to something so exciting before. So, you know, that was lightning in a bottle, and you wish you could, they could all be that exciting. But um, we were talking a little bit about ice hockey. Ohio State's uh, women's hockey team won the national championship for the first time in program history. So I would imagine that we're going to start seeing a lot more girls playing hockey in Columbus because of their success, because they've seen it now up close and personal. And, and I think that's just uh, part of the jobs that we have, the best part of some of the jobs that we have. Amanda, how much does the collegiate scene and being able to, rec you know, you talk about, we've mentioned grassroots, but also being able to develop collegiate athletes and get them into the scene, because it seems like in a lot of the major sports, and I would imagine rowing would be no di different, is you know you start in the grassroots and you show promise as a youth, but then as you go into the collegiate scene, and that's where you kind of really gain your gain your skills, and then take the next step before going on to the Olympic scene, or is it different? You know, do you tell you you oh. Yeah, tell us? Oh yeah, the collegiate pipeline is critical to our national team. Uh, and the, on the women's side, we saw an explosion of women's rowing and incredibly successful, incredibly strong women coming out of that system. And a direct result of that was being the best in the world in the women's eight for 10 years in a row. Um, and that was absolutely, everybody will say, oh, that was title nine. Benita, you work with league apps, which is taught, you know, you're big into the youth sports space. You know, how is it when you go to events and as a mother of a Division I athlete yourself, being able to have these collegiate and Olympic role models for them to, to, to idolize and try to emulate? It, it's definitely, it's key. If you, see, if you can see it, you can be it. We've all heard that wonderful adage, but I think it's so true for girls and, and women, but, but girls of color uh, in particular, we see far too few uh, girls of color participating. Uh, Kaleo, you talked about that in volleyball, hockey, similarly rowing. And uh, oftentimes these are sports that do, do require some, you know, investment by the family and the parents in order to have kids truly meet their potential. And so 
we uh, at League Apps have a program called Fun Play where we uh, give away our software for free to sports-based youth development organizations. And many of these organizations are using sport to reach kids uh, who otherwise wouldn't have an opportunity to play with free and reduced cost programming. Um, in addition to that, as you were talking about with Road New York, they're also subsidizing tutoring and um, college prep and that kind of thing. So alongside the sport, they're developing their whole child. And so they're able to, at the end of it, uh, be great athletes. Many of them go on to college and play their sport, but they're also prepared for that college opportunity academically as well. Kaleo and for Hillary, is that something that you guys are cognizant of when you're competing, knowing that young females will be seeing you and giving the chance to emulate them, emulate and take after you? Uh, I mean, yes, especially as an athlete with with a disability, and in my disability, kind kind of teetered the line of depending on your surgery of your actual disability, and I think people with my certain disability are very aware. And um, for me, I only knew of um, an Olympic ice skater who had club foot, which is my disability. And she was who I looked up to. She, like you said, is who I could be. And so I do know that there is a lot of weight as a volleyball player and as a person with my specific disability that there is um, weight to it and eyes on me. And so I just hope to be someone of whom someone could look up to. Hillary, I mean, women's hockey is just booming. So whenever, when you take the ice, are you really look into the crowd and think, you know, there are people who are here to see me, you know, I need to put on a show. <laughs> De definitely for warm-ups. I think when the puck <laughs> drops, you don't want to be thinking about that. But no, it's, um, it's definitely top of mind. Um, you know, whenever we enter a community, whether we're on tour with the PWHPA or with USA Hockey, we're very cognizant of our presence in that community and doing different activations uh, with local youth. So it's definitely top of mind. And just a small story, when I was younger, growing up just outside of Chicago, I was able to go to Camry Granado ice hockey camp. I and mean, Camry Granado, for those who don't know, is the captain of the 98 team that I said that sort of mystified me with wanting to play hockey and be a woman um, at that level and continue to compete. But I wear number 21 because of Camry Granado. And to have that touch point directly with Cami at a hockey camp and learn from the best and just have that aha moment. It was sort of full circle. So to now be in a similar position where you have a platform and you have the ability to inspire the next generation, it, it definitely doesn't go missed on us, um, the responsibility that we have, but also the, the advocacy that we can do just through sport. You mentioned the PWHPA that you are a part of and you've been touring around the country, but still to for many, in many sports, there remain difficulties for female athletes being able to maintain a professional athletic career from a financial standpoint. What can be done to change that? Or what do you hope can be, can, you see coming in the coming years to change that? Yeah, I think um, the biggest issue we've had is just sort of um, behavior and understanding, you know, as many doors as we've knocked on to try and find a more sustainable um, professional women's hockey league or be a part of that process. A lot of it in the early stages was, oh, well, we don't know, you know, how this sort of shakes out or we don't know what kind of investment this is gonna be. So to have that sort of behavioral shift and understanding that women's sports is more of a viable business option than just a, a charity or a check that you can kind of just write off um, was, 
pivotal for, for the time right now. And then secondly, um, increasing programming, resources, and visibility, finding partners that align with our mission. Um, obviously, we need to fill the gap between collegiate athletics when you become a post-grad and life changes because you don't have all the, the luxuries that you had that Title IX has provided us. Um, and then you also want to compete at the best and compete on the world stage and represent your country. And so that's part of the mission of the PWHPA is filling those gaps when you know, some of the women might not be on the national team, but we're going to prepare them for the next stage so we can continue to play hockey at the professional level. Oh, and by the way, we're going to try and, you know, provide a livable wage at the same time. So I think if anyone, um, you know, were to, if we were to go a few years ago, they'd be like, yeah, you guys are crazy. But just given the time where we are with Title IX, the, the opportunities that that provided us, um, the experience, and then also just the timing of the behavioral shift. It's sort of this perfect tide in women's sports and championing other, other industry and other sports' success as well. So really encouraging with the progress we've made and obviously a long way to go, but exciting. It, hearing you talk reminds me of a quote that Megan Rapino said last summer about ahead of Olympics is women's sports, she, I'm paraphrasing this, she said there's no really, there's no number to say what women's sports is in terms of of, you know, X million of dollars revenue because no one's ever tried to monetize it fully. So the ceiling is really, there is no ceiling in many ways. So and it sounds a lot like what you're thinking is going to be down the line for you. Yeah, and I think that's when you have these conversations they become almost more daunting because people don't know what it's going to shake out to be. But um, I'm just, I'm confident with, with um, you know, seeing other leagues and, and learning curves and the successes, um, and also setbacks that we can provide a, a successful um, you know, opportunity post-collegiate. I know we can, this is a topic we can discuss for hours, but I do want to get you know, one final question and start with Benita and go down the line for our panel today is, what do you think the future holds for women's sports, both in what encourages you at this current moment, but is there anything that may worry you that you want to make sure people know, do not let, X, Y, or Z happen? What encourages me? I, Angel City Football Club encourages me to see the amazing investors, a lot of female investors, and uh, Hollywood stars, and fellow athletes investing in that team to see them sell out games in their very first season this year, and see the success they're having on the field at the same time is really amazing. My daughter encourages me to see you know, the next generation of female athletes in college and seeing how excited they are and how the resources that they're getting at the college level to participate and pursue their dreams, both in the classroom and, and on the playing field. I think a couple things discourage me. One of the things um, is coaching, female, females in coaching. Before Title IX, 94% of coaches coaching female athletes were women. And now it's under 50%, and some of them are hovering closer to 40%, uh, particularly at the collegiate levels. And so, whereas 12 times more girls are playing, we have you know, less than half the number of, of female coaches, of coaches. Um, and then, you know, just some issues around uh, figuring out how to be as inclusive as possible, but maintain women's uh, access to sport with the transgender issue. We've, we've got to figure that out so it's fair and equitable for, for everyone. Um, we have to 
figure out at collegiate sports as the Power Five conferences, the bigger schools are thinking about breaking away, will they continue to, at those schools, keep girls and, and women's sport um, at the collegiate level? So those are lots of things swirling in my mind. I would say the, the opportunity to see more women in leadership roles, we're seeing it with some coaches um, most recently, I think Las Vegas and other places, you're talking about investors. Uh, Kansas City just built the very first uh, women, a facility for women's sports, right? That's so amazing there. And then even our industry, you, you, we've got some great leaders, um, CEOs, right, at the NGB level. So I think the future is very bright. But then I think there's an impatience of we've kind of come a long way, but what's next? And maybe the next 50 years will go much quicker with a lot bigger strides. I guess well, one thing that encourages me is it's right here, right? The fact that these two much younger women, this wasn't even as, not that it's not relevant to you two, but that this is, this wasn't really a part of your experience, right? Just as for my generation, I like to hear my mother-in-law talk about, you know, how she was only allowed to play half-court basketball, right? They literally couldn't go to the other end, or women couldn't run a marathon, weren't allowed to. So each generation we get to see, you know, we're standing on the shoulders of the women ahead of us. Um, what discourages me is, or what motivates me, I should say, is part of the discouragement is, you know, really keeping young women safe in sport. No one wants to have that conversation, but I think it's really important and um, something we all need to be aware of in this sport across multiple sports. And I think, you know, it's incredible to think about elite athletes and, you know, being collegiate athletes and being Olympians and Paralympians. Uh, and this doesn't discourage me per se, but I, I just think it's an important reminder to think about the 99% of our girls and young women who don't necessarily have aspirations to be collegiate athletes, but still benefit so much. And like, let's remember and value their participation because, you know, girls and young women in sports, sports are great for everybody. Um, and I'm being sport agnostic here. I'm not necessarily saying rowing. I think when young women and Benita, I think we've talked about this, like when young women participate in sports, you can message something to them that n nothing else will in terms of the importance of strength as a young woman, um, using your voice, using your body, and literally and figuratively taking up space, which is something our society doesn't always encourage of young women and not young women. So sports are a, a great asset in that sense. So I would love for us to, you know, really encourage that at every level. Kalia, how about you? Yeah, for me, I think the encouraging part is to see, um, I'm like dipping my toes into coaching and just to see the passion that young women still have for sports. I think I know, I only know my experience. And so seeing other people having their own experiences um, at such a young age is really beautiful to watch. Something else that encourages me is the platform that the Paralympics, the Paralympics have been given and how, how much it's grown even in the 13 years that I've been a part of it. But then also, on the other side of that, there's so much room for disabled athletes to feel comfortable in school and, and disabled women to feel comfortable in school participating in sports. And it's, I think, the responsibility of the coaches and the coaching staff and the school to allow disabled women to have their space, to take up room, to not be afraid, and also the 
sexual harassment piece of it um, from having experienced that at not in sport but in school and, and seeing how it was reacted to and how it was dealt with. It's so important to not only protect women and young women as athletes, but also as students within these organizations or um, within your schools. It's so important. And then, like you said, that these women, I hope, have, um, have people to look forward, to look up to in each sport, in every area that they're pursuing. It's so important, whether you're a male or a female, to be encouraging um, the young women around you. So I think there's, there's a lot of room to grow, especially with accepting disabilities into um, every sport and then showing them the Paralympics. And I think that's the responsibility of everyone. But yeah, I think there's room to grow and I'm so grateful for how far we've come. Yeah, definitely grateful for how far we've come. Encouraged by all the success and, and the, the opportunities provided. And I think the biggest thing is continuing that success, continuing to combat visibility issues for women in sport programming and resources. I think those three continue to be hot topics and things that are holding you know, women's sports back. And in just such a short amount of time, 50 years is, is a small amount of time to make as much progress as we had. And if you consider all the legislation that went back and forth and even to 96, and we've accomplished a lot as women. And to think where the sports world and how Title IX can be a catalyst out of sport as well is just extremely incredible. So I'm excited, and I think if anything, I'd highlight those three buckets. This has been another edition of the Sports Travel Podcast. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe to our podcast on all your favorite platforms, including iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Past episodes are also available at sportstravelmagazine.com, which features regularly updated breaking news and in-depth features on stories related to the sports events industry. Be sure to visit us daily at sportstravelmagazine.com, at sportstravel on Twitter and Instagram, and at sportstravelmagazine on Facebook and LinkedIn. Until then, this is Jason Gewertz for Sports Travel. Thanks for listening.